Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. Ladies, how are we doing this morning? Great. Good. <laughs> how are you doing, Ian? I was asleep, like, <laughs> recently. <laughs> Early I'm morning I'm doing elephants. absolutely great. There's nothing like waking up in the morning to Tolstoy continuing to harp on the same point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, we'll go one further. There's nothing like your job in the morning being to pick up War and Peace with, like, you know, your early morning body. <laughs> your early morning. I love that tired. it's body that you're talking about. This is a heavy book. My arms oh, hurt. Yes. Honestly, my wrists hurt from holding this book up. Yeah. I was trying to manage my coffee and my book at the same time. It's, it's a terrible a idea. You guys. I know I've talked about this, but I just want you to identify with me about the wrist pain. Somebody somewhere has probably put together an edition that's like a bunch of distinct volumes, you know, in a big case. That would be a lot easier to read. I wonder if that's true, Ian. I would totally have bought that. There's a danger, if though. If that were an option. There's a danger, which is that getting to the end of a volume, and we know that he doesn't pay any attention to where his volumes begin and end. I mean... He stops right in the middle of a conversation he intends fully to continue all the time when it comes to splitting up volumes. So that's true. Yeah, it could be that you get to the end of a volume and it gives you such a sense of completion that you decide, yeah, I don't really care what happens to these characters. I think I'm done. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. That's a real danger. It's a real danger. But with the big book scenario, I have realized that it will start closing itself. Like it's too heavy (laughs) on one side and it just starts... Closing itself, which is an equal danger. Mm-hmm. It closes itself, and I'm like, <laughs> moving on. Oh, no, look what <laughs> Guess happened. Guess I can't keep reading today. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I actually am enjoying it, particularly because this section, we got some characters that we recognize back again. Yeah, we literally, some people step into the scene instead of historical forces and powers outside of everyone's control and stuff, but not before he's done the historical forces thing again. So we're, we're in part three. Well, let's see. Let's do it right. We're in volume four, part three. Chapters one through five. This is the final part of the final volume. Aside from the epilogue. The epilogue itself is structured just like a volume. So one wonders why it's called an epilogue. But but this is the final part of the final volume. Nope, it's not. There's a part four. This is not the final part of the final volume. (laughs) Ian is just wishful thinking into the microphone this morning. (laughs) We've always been reading War and Peace. (laughs) We will always be. Come on, come on, guys, cut me some slack. It's page one thousand (laughs) thirty-one. You had to do some quick time math. (laughs) Addition is hard this morning. One thousand thirty plus, and and add one, and add one, and one more. One more is. It's only two (laughs) hundred more pages. I know we're so close. We are. This is amazing. We can do it. Okay, okay. So so here in the first chapter, he does what he has has been doing, although there's a couple there's a new component to his 
to his argument about historical forces. And he still wants to talk about how the genius of the commander is not the main thing that's making things happen. But he does notice a, a relatively substantial, well, a way in which this story about the French invading and getting kicked out on their butts from Russia taken in the sweep of historical observation is out of the ordinary. You guys remember that? Yeah, I do. Talk to me about it, Megan. Well, okay, I, I probably am going to summarize this wrong, but from my understanding, he was making a list of all of the countries that France has invaded in the past and basically declaring in the past when France invades, that country loses all of their rights. And he does this to emphasize that Russia broke France, that Russia, of all the countries that France ever invaded, didn't lose its rights. In fact, it broke the French and off they went with their tails between their legs. Yeah. Is that an that's, appropriate summary? I think that's one, think? that's one side of it for sure. It's a, it's a, I think there are, two, there are two main things. Emily, what were you going to say? Well, yeah, it's not just the French. What he's positing is that it has been true or the historians at least because we find out that this voice that he's taking at the beginning is actually him parroting the historians. They uh -huh. believe that an army is equivalent to a nation's power. And so if the army wins, the nations that in an equal measure, the rights or privileges of that nation increase to the extent that they won. And if they lose the rights and privileges of the nation decrease to the extent that they lost. Right. And, and he's saying this has always been known to be true, yada, 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 except for now here in this instance, it's not true. And it's probably been not true before, but they were small skirmishes and there weren't people witnessing what happened. But here the eyes of the world are watching and our grandfathers were there and they've told us this story. And we know for a fact that this is at least an exception to the rule that in this case, France won their army, defeated the Russians, but it but their power decreased. And right. so we have to reevaluate our equation on this score. Yeah. Well, and it's he does eventually turn it into an actual equation, at which point my pre-coffee eyes glazed right over. <laughs> but the point extends into his great man casting down the great man theory, because in his mind, the reason that all nations across time have looked at the fortunes of their army, which are a relatively small chunk of the population percentage-wise, the reason they look at their army's fortunes to determine how the whole nation goes is because they are convinced of this great man theory. They look at the army as, as proof of what's going to happen to their country in the same way that they look at the general as proof of what's going to happen to their army. And he says, that's not actually how it works. But of course, it takes the Russian spirit to unlock the real truths of the human condition, right? Which, right. on the one hand, historically true. This is exactly what happened. And it's incredible that the Battle of Borodino did actually cause... Turn the tide. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a vast army. I mean, I don't know if it was officially the largest army ever assembled at the time, but one of them on a short list of the largest armies ever assembled at the time. And so the, the fact that they won Moscow... And had basically done everything that an army needed to do in order to be victorious and still got kicked out on their ear is astonishing. It's worth mm -hmm. commenting on is what I'm saying. So even if I'm making fun of Tolstoy a little bit for harping on it, he makes a he makes a valid historical observation. This hasn't been seen often before. Although is is the American Revolution is kind of an example of this as well, though, right? I thought of that and I wondered if he was thinking of that too in the section 
a little bit that comes a little bit later when he talks about the dispersion of forces. Yeah. Yep. When he's talking about the what, the partisans, guerrilla warfare, right? Yeah. So I don't think that it, it fits here because we did, you know, win our battles, and right. that was what pushed the British out. But it, um, the American Revolution is absolutely an example of a dispersion of forces and not massing together, and yet still having a greater force. Right. He says. Um, the period in the campaign of 1812 from the Battle of Borodino to the expulsion of the French proved that a battle won is not only not the cause of conquest, but is not even an invariable sign of conquest. It proved that the force that decides the destiny of nations lies not in conquerors, not even in armies and battles, but in something else. So that's part of what he's doing in this first chapter. The other part is this image that he comes up with that is a little Looney Tune-esque in which he claims... Consequently, the most fun part of the whole chapter, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I guess it's connected to the great man theory, but it's slightly different. What he's saying is that everyone wanted to play by the rules. And Napoleon was this whiny kid who kept complaining that the Russians weren't playing by the rules of war and they were cheating. And what he says is, obviously, when death is on the table, the smart people put down their fancy swords in their fencing match and they grab a big use club, a club and start mm -hmm. beating people with it because it's the most efficient way to win and preserve your life. Mm -hmm. And Napoleon got his panties in a wad about this. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, there's definitely a note of, and I've, I've been more vitriolic with Tolstoy about this in past episodes. There's no need now, but there is a note of sarcasm that he brings into the conversation that makes him a little less than likable for me in these passages, because he's basically saying all of the combined sum total of human wisdom and recorded analysis by historians, by people observing battles in their own times, all of the great sweep of human experience is wrong. And I and the rest of the Russian spirited people are right. And, and that's, well, bold move, Tolstoy. Bold move, Leo. Uh, that's that is quite a statement. That's quite a statement. So, moving on. <laughs> what about this equation that he writes? Did did you guys make sense of the of the equation? Well, first of all, it, it's worth noting that he's he is serious here. Actually, this is not, as far as I can tell, this is not a metaphor. On his part, he really believes, quote, and by bringing various historical units, battles, campaigns, periods of war into such equations, we will obtain a series of numbers in which laws should exist and may be discovered concerning this equation, as opposed to mass times velocity equals force. He's saying it's it's mass times this X factor in an army, which he identifies as spirit, that we're going to be able to, to find that ratio. It's interesting to me, when when he set that equation up, when he started talking about mass versus velocity, I thought he was just going to continue on with velocity mm -hmm. and talk about um, agility of a smaller body of men and the fact that they can strike from a lot of angles at once and strike multiple times in a day and it doesn't take them three or four days to get the, the lines it's moving. It's still related. It's like an inner motion, right? Like a, a motion of the spirit. Sure. I think, I guess what's interesting to me is that um, he points back again to something 
that's innately human, not scientific, Mm -hmm. in an effort to talk about something in a scientific way. Well, actually, this reminded me of the end of What is Art, his little treatise that I've talked about before, in which he turns his attention in the conclusion or the epilogue to science. He's been talking about art for a really long time, and he turns his attention to the sciences and says, basically, this isn't my area, but I believe that what I've been saying about art will, like, the sciences are there to find truth uh-huh. um, so that art can pursue truth and elaborate upon it and explore it. And he was like, I fully believe that science is on its way to find, like, science will find for us what the spirit of the art should be. So he really does have, I think, a pretty, even, um, Thus far, I think it would be easy to say that he has disrespected science, but that's not entirely true because he he continuously uses it for metaphor. He's talked about, yeah, balls rolling down hills. Physics has factored greatly into what he's been trying to tell us. I He truly does believe that science and this kind of, I don't know what, intangible truth, that eventually these two things will line up together i guess we'll find out i mean it does seem to me that this opening couple of chapters in this part does it in a way that some of the other long meditations haven't frame the content that follows because he wants to talk about a stage of the battle now where we have independent troops of guerrilla uh, guerrilla warriors running around the countryside harrying the french on their way out of the country right and we're going to find some familiar faces in some of these hordes but there's one thing i wanted to read because He seems to have a really good handle on the fact that the kinds of organizations that, uh, let's see, as a human association grows in size, it becomes less and less capable of having the kind of spirit he's talking about, maybe is the way to put it. So he says, he says, among all these partisans, there are bands that are big enough to have all the things a traditional army has, like staffs and modern conveniences and detachments and all that sort of thing. And then there are ones that are just a, a shade down from that. And they have horses and men and, and things like that, but they're not, they're, they're not quite as big. They don't have quarters and stuff. And then finally, there are little groups of peasants running around with pitchforks. And it's in those tiny little groups that the most spirit uh, happens and the idea of limits is gone. Only those leaders of detachments who had staffs followed rules and moved about at a distance from the French considered many things impossible. The small partisan groups who had been in action a long time and watched the French from up close considered things possible that the leaders of large detachments did not dare to think of. The Cossacks and the peasants who got in among the French considered that anything was now possible. Mm -hmm. And I think it's with the middle group that we're about to take up arms, right? The... The kind that is um, the small partisan group loosely attached to the military, but still running themselves. Yeah. And playing military commanders against each other, which I thought was a funny way to open. So we have Denisov, who's in charge of a small partisan detachment, and he has been invited. One can write in commanded to join his forces up with two different official army regiments. And so he sends a note to the one general and says, I would love to, but I've already been commanded by this other general to join him. And then to the other general, he sends the same note about the other guy (laughs) and thereby neatly getting himself out of having to join either one of them because he wants the booty for himself and his men. 
And off we go on the most miserable rainy day. Could you guys believe the descriptions of the rain in this part? It made me feel wet. Could you believe the shift in narrative tone as he steps away from historical philosophy mm-hmm. and into the story again? I mean, yeah. it was like a it was a clear break in it was like Tolstoy flexing and saying, and now I'm going back to what I'm good at. <laughs> I felt the same way. And in an instant, I was back in and he had all of my attention and it was immersive, you know? Yeah. And very wet and miserable. Yes. So what is there to notice about about this this section? It's pretty narrative. With Denisa? Yeah, it's narrative heavy. There's not a lot of... of Medi- meditative. Yeah, there's nothing really meditative about it. Well, clearly what came before is supposed to frame this, and we haven't gotten very far in it, but we can already see, at least from a bird's eye view, we can see that the section where Tolstoy talks about the French needing to stay massed together because their spirit is low, and the Russians can spread out because their spirit is high, we see that in action, in particular in the mission that Tikhon is in. Oh, this guy's fun. Um, and he is a single man who, <laughs> who, come to find out, is um, has gone into the French camp all by himself. Uh, and he cannot be beaten. He's my favorite. The description of how he came to be with them. And what he's done with his career was really awesome. There's some local color for you. So to to remind you both, Tikhon is the, he's a peasant or a muzik, right? Who was harrying the French by his onesie. And then Denisov's detachment rolls through town and he kind of says, I'd like to come along. And he says, okay, sure. You can have all the grunt work. So he's making fires and, and dealing with skinning the horses. horses. Yeah. Whatever skinning yeah. a horse means. Skinning horses. <laughs> and, um, I assume they're not actually skinning them. I think it's probably a term for grooming or something. I hope so. I don't know. I hope they're not eating them. Well, the f- I know the French yeah, are the eating French them. Yeah, the French were. But. Oh, gracious. Well, either way, that's what he's doing is all the grunt work. However, he begins to distinguish himself by after the grunt work is done for the evening, going off into the night right by himself and coming back with prisoners or loot of some variety <laughs> and just sort of <laughs> dispensing wealth to the rest of the division. And saying, hey, man, here's all the stuff that I got last night. Have a great day. <laughs> and because he's so successful, nobody in the camp respects him. So, again, right. Tolstoy is kind of reminding us, by the way, the more successful you are, the less pe- the less popular opinion thinks of you as significant. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a good way to read that. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I loved the um, similarity in his attitude between him and Platon, the potato guy. I was guy, just going to you know? say, I felt the same way. The more they mock him, the more he leans into their mockery and appreciates it along with them. And he's kind of, I don't know, it's impossible to get him down. He's indomitable. Yeah, so that's so funny. The, the way that I read it was even even yet a third way, which is that it's camaraderie. He didn't have their respect at first because he was a peasant, not an official soldier. And then he does enough that he becomes the butt of the joke, which in giant groups of men usually means that everybody likes you. If they're if they're ribbing you all the time, it's because you're one of them and, and you belong and you fit. And I think um, Emily's interpretation is probably the most likely, given what we know about Tolstoy and his aims in the novel. But... Um, it's fun it's fun to me to think about a guy like that worming his way into the hearts of all of Denisov's men. And when they see him running a, a, running through the French camp, having just been discovered in the heart of the French camp, and they're shooting at him and he's plopping into a river and swimming across and like <laughs> making his escape. Okay. The, the 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 response is, That's our Tikon! There he is! That's our guy. 
I thought when they took out their glass or whatever to see the French and Denisov, they, they see the French startled or whatever and to arms, I thought for sure that it was going to be Dolokhov like sneaking in and just deciding to do it without Denisov. Right. Because he's such a butt. Well, he's, yes, he's such a butt. I think that's the only way to talk about him. The fact that Dolokhov has been absent for this whole section, though, here he is supposedly working with Denisov, and Denisov has trusted him to go and find them a tongue, find them a, you know, capture a Frenchman who can tell them about the, the location of the troops, etc. And Dolokhov has vanished, and he can't be counted upon. I thought, ah, yes, there he is again. What a rascal. Not in a good way. You know, so I, I'm with you, Emily. I assumed that Dolokhov was causing trouble, but actually he was just absent. I guess we'll find out in the next chapter what in the world he's doing. But it's an interesting pairing. Nonetheless, Denisov and Dolokhov here yeah. at the end of the novel. Well, and that's not all, right? We also get Petya Rostov. Oh, yeah. Who is now as a little, I think Tolstoy may have done this. Well, one of the things that it does for us, I guess I should say, is that it reminds us how long this war has been going on. A new generation has yeah, joined Pe the battle. Petya is now an officer. When we last saw him, he was what? A fresh-faced recruit of like 15 or something? Mm -hmm. But he's still young, and he behaves much like his brother Nikolai did on during his first battle. Speaking of Nikolai, where is he? Come to think of it, where's Natasha or any of the other people <laughs> we care about? I know it. Petya does give Denisov a quick summary of how his favorite hussar is doing, which I think is supposed to be Nikolai. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't pick that part up. Okay. So Nikolai is alive and well, serving in some other regiment, and Petya brings news of him. That makes sense. It's I not did. enough, Leo. It's not enough. I did appreciate the really human moment when... Dolok or Denisov is really into his plans and I, he's kind of like I, I kind of wonder if he's like a mini Kutuzov for us he is he is engaged with his men and he's uh, planning this attack and then just like when Andre came to Kutuzov Petya comes and Denisov doesn't even recognize him and he reads the letter and, and finds out who the messenger boy is and stops oh, and yeah. says Petya Rostov right such a great moment because Denisov as we remember has idealized the Rostov family and remembers them very fondly from the time that he asked Natasha to marry him do we still all sort of wish she'd said yes no, no, but we do feel badly for Denisov. I wondered if Denisov's sudden turn back to battle stratagems and his like blustery nature right after that warm moment that you're talking about, Emily, is further evidence of his love for the Rostov family and that he's uncomfortable. Now Petya is here in his regiment with him and he feels so tenderly towards him and it's like that that emotion doesn't fit the scenario and it's actually kind of a dangerous place to feel that way and he's he's covering over his true emotion with uh business but petya takes it another way petya thinks that he's upset with him because his pants are undone <laughs> and so he's trying to like hike up his pants and fix his outfit in a way that the makes guys me wonder notice. makes me wonder so what an officer is anyway i mean <laughs> that's such a teenage boy yeah. thing to think and do well, I think an officer is a paid position, basically because he is an aristocrat. He's automatically put in the ranks or in the in the commandership because you don't put a aristocrat 
in among the privates. Mm. I guess that makes it's sense. Certainly not a position given to you because you understand things. <laughs> because Petya, as Tolstoy tells us, didn't understand. He decidedly did not understand anything that's oh, going on. I've <laughs> never identified with anything in this book so much as when Denisov is like, and then in this maneuver, we're gonna do this thing and that thing, right? And Petya's like, Yes. And instead <laughs> Petya had no idea <laughs> what was being talked about. <laughs> oh oh <man>. yeah. <laughs> There is a there is a there is an explanation for it though because Petya has been attached to a a real army division, and still is, and this is partisan warfare, and he's trying to emphasize the difference between those things. What he's after is a tongue, which is their slang word for a prisoner that will tell us everything we need to know, and that's not the way the army usually operates. I think there's there's at least a little bit of an explanation for Petya's dumbness on the issue. <laughs> still a funny moment though it is there is more going on here though than simply the russians are trying to kick the french out as quickly as possible and get as much of their loot as they can it's a very subtle moment but we're told that this regiment of frenchmen are also marching russian prisoners out of the country and so there's a very like human rescue element to this which interestingly no one is expanding upon but like they can't these men can't let the french take their men out back to france right they can't they can't take pierre back to france well (laughs) one wonders where pierre is (laughs) does one i think one might know (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness well ladies i i confess i don't know what else to say about this section it seems as though we've kind of covered many of the bases. You guys have any parting shots? No, I think I think we need to read more. I think that we are we have begun a new section, and I feel it. Mm-hmm. And there's some we've got a new head of steam up uh, where plot is concerned in character development, and I'm Yay. excited to yeah hopefully see a conclusion of sorts oh, coming into focus. You know, I hope so too. What you're saying, what you were saying last week about there not ever being a resolution has stuck in my mind with great fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really hope he doesn't do that to us. And I don't know if we can trust him with that. But uh, then again, he is kind of addicted to the scientific formulas for things. And he likes things to be neat and tidy That's and mathematical. True. So we maybe, you know. We can expect a uh, an end to the equation at some point. Emily, what about you? Yeah, I I just keep remembering that by the time we're done with this, it will have been two years since we started, Whoa. which is such a long time. And I'm not. <laughs> would you guys have? Which is such would a long you guys time. have said yes if you knew that this was going to take two years? I did know it was going. To, you and I sat down and talked about it. We had a conversation about how long it was going to take us. I thought like max year and a half. I don't know. There's just something about two years. I I don't know. I think it's appropriate though to spend two years in a novel that spans so many more than that. You know, I feel like in a lot of ways, like we've mentioned it a lot of times. Many times the season in the story will correspond with the season that we are in. Like he meant for this story to take you forever to read, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. You're spending years of your life with these characters and watching them grow as you grow. And I think there's something poetic about that. I don't know that I would have, I mean, made the time commitment (laughs) had I known. But I'm glad I did. I've been trying to write about this and haven't been successful yet. But I do think that... For me, at least, the time of life that I'm in, this has been the appropriate time for me to Mm -hmm. read this book. 
Uh, most of the characters, I would guess. I mean, at least Pierre and Andre, they have to have been in at least their late twenties. I mean, they're they're in a stage of life where the we meet them and they have responsibilities. It's not that they're children in the same way that Natasha and company are children. They have started, they've embarked on their life. They're, they're trying to find, find out who they are. They've tried a couple things and they're coming to the realization that no matter what they do, it doesn't define them or it doesn't satisfy them in quite the way that they hoped. Um, and so it's like, they're still young, but they're trying to find this what is it that's going to define the rest of my life, you know? Yeah, they're having identity quests, which is kind of what you do in your late 20s, early 30s. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I definitely remember when we were being introduced to Pierre thinking, oh, I see me. I see me in there. I hope Tolstoy gets back to that. He's a, He is a keen observer of human nature, and I think the way he writes about it is um, shockingly clear. I want him to finish on that note. Well, and uh, again, this little moment between Denisov and Petya and the officers, it's a reminder. It's a good rem- It's a timely reminder that <laughs> Tolstoy is actually quite talented. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we have approved one of the absolutely unchallenged classics of the Western tradition. <laughs> right. right. Understatement. Of century. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. Well, thank you both for your thoughts and thank you listeners for joining us. Please do join the conversation on Facebook. We have a group that's set up specifically for ragging on Tolstoy and we would love to hear what you have to say. And until we meet again next time around, my friends, bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.